Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders in the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is intended for medical professionals, patients with sesame allergy, and the general public. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Scott Sischerer back to the podcast. Dr. Sischerer is the Elliot and Rosalind Jaffe Professor of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology and the Director of the Elliot and Rosalind Jaffe Food Allergy Institute at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. With a successful career devoted to research, clinical care, and leadership, Dr. Sischerer has established himself as a leading food allergy expert and a perfect guest to discuss today's topic. And with that, Dr. Sischerer, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave, and congratulations on this amazing podcast series. It is just fantastic. Oh, I appreciate that. And you were one of our earlier guests. I believe your first podcast was, oh my gosh, almost three years ago, if I'm not mistaken. So it's great to have you back. And the yeah, focus we were just of- babies. Exactly. (laughs) The the focus of today's podcast is really going to be on sesame allergy and the new labeling laws in the United States. But I think to begin, if we could just have you start by describing what we mean when we discuss food allergy and even how that differs from intolerances or sensitivities, I think that'd be a great place to begin. Yeah, you're right. This comes up a lot. Patients ask about this and there's a lot of misunderstanding. I mean, a food allergy, I explain is Uh, technically an adverse immune response to a food, meaning that the immune system, the part of the body that helps us fight infections, for example, ends up getting misdirected and attacking otherwise innocent proteins that are in our food, just like people might have their immune system attack cat proteins with cat allergy um, or pollen proteins for pollen allergy. It can happen with foods, and then you end up with a food allergy, except the implications there are more severe reactions from ingesting the food. And it's different than an intolerance or sensitivity in that an intolerance does not involve the immune system. And the classical intolerance is lactose intolerance from lactase deficiency. Lactase is an enzyme that digests the sugar in milk called lactose. And if you cannot do that, which actually most of the world's population does not have that enzyme enough to, to uh, digest milk sugar very well, you could get problems with digestion like gassiness and loose stools uh, and stuff that we don't like to talk about during lunch times. Mm. So that's a big difference because there's it definitely impacts quality of life and diet, but it doesn't have that implication of potentially being like threatening. And it's important to differentiate those. No, that's a great start. And uh, for the purpose of this conversation, we're going to be talking about allergies. So that immune response that you mentioned. Along those lines, how common are sesame allergies and how does that compare with other foods such as people who are allergic to milk or peanut? So sesame allergy uh, is pretty common if you look at it as uh, a large-scale allergy. Now, Rushi Gupta, Chris Warren, and others 
have a cross-sectional study in the United States from a program that they use that looks at about 40,000 adults and almost that many children, and looking at the question of whether people are avoiding sesame because of an allergy, almost one in 200 people indicate that they avoid sesame because of allergy. Now, in that study, the participants were asked details of their allergic reactions and exposure history and different qualifications were applied, and about half that number fulfilled the qualifications for more of a convincing sesame allergy, but, you know, it probably is somewhere between that 1 in 200 and 1 in 400. It translates on, on a population basis to talking about 1 to 2 million people in the United States that are avoiding sesame. And as you mentioned, on a large scale, that, that's a very big number. But do we know how that compares to, like, peanut allergy, for instance? So it is fewer. Um, peanut allergy in kids is, is just over 2%. Uh, in adults, it's just under 2%. Shellfish allergy actually is almost 3% reported from adults, about 1.3% 1, 1 in, in children. Milk allergies are just under 2% in kids. Egg allergy is just under 1%. So we are talking about sesame allergy being not quite as common as some of these other uh, major allergies. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the severity of sesame allergy? Can somebody have anaphylaxis or a life-threatening reaction to sesame similar to, the, to other food allergies? Well, that's where it's really important to think about a food like sesame as being an important allergen. And where, where the information on that uh, plays out is that in the same study I mentioned before, about a third reported having had anaphylaxis or severe allergic reaction, and a third of them used epinephrine. Um, so, so the answer is yes, uh, sesame allergy can cause anaphylaxis and you can have significant reactions, and we're talking basically on par with, you know, things that maybe make the news more like peanut allergy or tree nut allergies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and hence the, the importance of us discussing it today. So, <laughs> now, aside from the obvious presence of sesame seeds that people would see on bread or crackers or things like that, what are some common foods that contain sesame? That's a great uh, question because it really... I think is the case that people think of ses, and this is really important for people in restaurants who are think who are taking care of uh, patrons who have uh, food allergies. You know, it is the obvious thing to think, oh yeah, sesame on top of a bread or a bun, or okay, I think I've seen sesame seeds in crackers and things like that. But it really can be incorporated into foods as well, and so products like veggie burgers. Um, you might not have been thinking about sesame being in there, or even breadcrumbs that are used on chicken. Um, that the breadcrumbs could have sesame in it, and that could be, you know, mixed in and hidden in that way. And to make matters, you know, more confusing, sesame could be turned into a paste, which is called tahini, and then it, it shows up in a variety of cuisines: Asian cuisines, Middle Eastern cuisines, um, Turkish foods, and the list goes on. Hummus products like hummus have tahini in it. Some breads may have uh, sesame flour incorporated into it. So you could see that I'm, I'm giving all of these examples where it's, you know, if you had a, a server in a restaurant, they may not see the seeds on top of something. And yet there could be um, foods that they're serving that have uh, sesame paste, sesame oil also, um, sesame seeds incorporated into the food. Uh, so these, so these uh, flours that are used in, in breads, uh, there are, you know, 
sesame salts that are used that can be tricky. So it could be a pretty ubiquitous food, especially as our cuisines are getting more diverse and, and in some sense fancy. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, anecdotally, I guess it depends a little bit on ethnicity, um, but I would say from a pediatric standpoint, most families tell me they observe reactions to things like tahini or hummus. Would, is that your experience as well? Yeah. So, you know, we've, you know, we, we do, uh, it's an interesting, it's a whole other topic, I think, which we, we should cover, which is that there's different forms of sesame. You have the seeds. And mm. if we think about the seeds, you know, they're sort of like having a little boat that's carrying cargo and the cargo it's carrying is the protein that people are allergic to, but those are really little guys. But then when you make um, tahini, you're increasing the amount of sesame protein so much. So for example, a 32nd of a teaspoon, which is like a generous drop of tahini, which is the sesame paste, is equivalent to about 60 sesame seeds. Hmm. And so you're right, like in observing in, in clinical uh, situations, we have people who come in having had a reaction to hummus that has tahini in it. But when we talk to them, we find out that they've been eating seeds on bread. You know, the uh, allergy is not uh, a case where everyone is reactive to a tiny little invisible amount. There's a threshold situation where some people don't react until they've had X amount of the protein. Um, going a little bit deeper into that, about uh, people do studies where they look at like among the allergic population, what amount of protein would trigger a reaction for 1% or for 5% or for half of the allergic population? And when we're talking about sesame seeds, the amount that would trigger for the most sensitive, like one in a hundred is, you know, on the order of maybe one seed or two seeds, but that's obviously quite rare. So mm-hmm. the average or the 50% um, level where people react to sesame is more like 300 to 450 milligrams. So now we're talking about 600 seeds hmm. or about a third of a teaspoon of tahini. So that's where, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to have been eating seeds and things and then show up having had a reaction to uh, to a product that has tahini in it. In fact, um, there have been a couple of studies about this. There was a Turkish study, small study, about 60% with reactions to tahini tolerated seeds. Um, there was an Israeli study where about 80% who had sesame allergy where they would react to higher concentrations were able to tolerate 60 intact seeds. And notice I said intact seeds because that's another part of the trick here. Mm. Um, probably some of those little boats I was talking about float through your gut without much happening. And you know, if you're chewing on the seeds, you're breaking them open more and that could even be a difference. Um, crushed seeds being a little bit different or tahini being different. And I'm hoping you won't ask me about sesame oil, but if you do, I'll answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, funny that you mentioned that because, so it, this is a great segue because um, actually you, you've you been involved in some uh, some recent publications that have been uh, pivotal at, in advancing our understanding of some of these nuances that you just described. And we've learned so much about risk associated with different food allergens over the past several years, including differences within each individual, how the allergen is ingested, as you mentioned. And, you know, with peanut allergy, for example, we know that um, a lot of folks can tolerate refined peanut oil. So I do want to ask you the question, and feel free to say pass, but <laughs> what about those with sesame allergy? Can they, can they typically tolerate sesame oil or, or other derivatives? All right. So we've learned that Dr. Stupid can't <laughs> take a hint, but um, so, so 
It's, it's actually a very common question. And um, so you're absolutely right. There's different kinds of peanut oil, and some of the peanut oils are made by essentially squeezing peanut, and then the protein is in there. So gourmet kinds of peanut oil really are a problem for, peanut, for people with peanut allergy. But um, people with peanut allergy can typically tolerate the highly refined peanut oils, which do show up in a lot of commercial products and, you know, could potentially be safely ingested because they've separated the fat from the protein. So the, so the highly processed oil is a bunch of fat without the protein. And as I mentioned in the very beginning, the protein is what people react to. A problem with sesame oil is that it is not a highly refined product. And so it's, it's actually hard to measure the amount of protein that's residual in sesame oil. And I would think it's a fair statement, although I don't have a, a data to point to, that probably different brands of oil might end up with different amounts of protein left in them based on the processing. There's only a couple of studies that I know of that have tried to measure it, and I think even the assays of measuring it are, are problematic because measuring an oil creates a problem. Um, the amounts that those studies come up with are pretty small, um, but there are studies uh, of people with significant sesame allergy where some of the uh, people in those studies have reacted to sesame oil. We actually reviewed our own um, patients here, 66 patients with sesame allergy, and seven reported having had reactions to oil. So I think it is a problem. Now, just like everything else, the amount of oil probably matters. Like, you know, did something just get touched by oil, or is it really like a dressing that is full of sesame oil? I mean, that's a different amount as well. So here's where it's, it's like wishy-washy, and if I have a patient who has food allergy, who, sesame allergy, who really, really, really wants to delve into eating sesame oil, I'm stuck with a conversation saying all of these unknowns. I'm stuck with potentially offering them a food challenge to whatever oil brand they decide they think is the right one or a most common one for an amount that they think will exceed any amount they would ever ingest and then see if they react or not. We don't really have a good handle on it otherwise. And so that would be individualizing it in that particular case. But but we are really, I feel like we really lack a lot of specific data about the oil situation. I do want to just take a second to sort of opine, if I may, because even though we don't have a clear answer, as you, as you just described, I think just having the conversation is something that wouldn't have taken place even 10, 15 years ago, where it, it was a highly conservative, just if you're allergic to something, you must strictly avoid no matter what form, because any, any trace amounts can kill you sort of thing. So I, I think that this is an important um, thing for us to recognize that this conversation you just had that we can have with patients about risk and and individualized approaches it's just it's monumental i mean have you sensed this shift yourself in your own practice and the way that you sort of approach food allergy yes so this is not um what i'm about to talk about obviously is not necessarily something that every allergist would do and it it really requires shared decision making and a discussion about risks benefits and what is to be gained by um determining more about uh, options for a, for, a, for a family, for a patient, and what their comfort level is, and also what we don't know. For example, if we do a food challenge to any food and identify, okay, you were able to eat this amount without a problem, but we know that you could eat that amount and it causes a problem, are we ever going to talk about you being allowed to have X amount? And for sesame, this comes up like, especially sesame, because people will come in having exactly what we said earlier. They 
reacted to hummus. And that's the first time they ate it. But they say, I've been having sushi with sesame seeds on it and bagels with sesame seeds on it and nothing's ever happened. So can I still eat those things? And it puts us in a position of having a conversation about exactly the risks of eating some things that have some of what you're allergic to in it. And also the fact that a person's threshold might change with time or might change with circumstance. So, you know, this is a maybe going a little bit too tangential, but things like having an Ill, being sick at the moment, like a like a fever, viral infection, or having alcohol, or exercising, uh, or taking uh, aspirin type medications, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, they all could, and even being tired, can all make you more reactive. It's what we call augmentation factors. So, mm-hmm. like if you kind of know that you could eat X amount of sesame in front of your doctor. What if you ate that amount of sesame, but you had it with wine? You know, it might be different. So it's really a complex conversation of risk, benefit, and shared decision-making. And, um, you know, I think we know that certainly not all allergists uh, would be saying, hey, you have to go down this pathway because it carries risks. And it's sort of avant-garde, I guess, if that's the right word, Mm -hmm. or it's a gradually changing approach. But... You know, but these conversations are being had, and we're doing research to try to add more um, meat behind what we could tell people about this. Because right now, a lot of it is estimation and extrapolation from you know few studies on it. But absolutely, um, you know, I'm doing now food challenges to X number of seeds for some patients because <laughs> they feel like it will make them feel more confident in taking a bagel that you know, even though they don't see any seeds on it, what if there was some seed embedded in it, that sort of thing. But I have to still give everyone like that warnings about everything I mentioned so far, or that, you know, they might have a bread that has sesame flour in it, and that's a whole new ball game. That's a lot mm-hmm. more protein. A lot to talk yeah. about with that. No, I agree. And I've had a similar experience. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, sesame is, it's, it's so, pr- it's prevalent in so many different forms and different foods that sometimes just, uh, you know, if they want to eat something um, you know, in the office, it makes it seem less restrictive and it just offers them more options that they can safely consume, even if they can't, if they're still allergic to sesame. So I, I've had similar experiences and I, I appreciate you, you taking the time to, to tease out some of those nuances, because I think that really sets the stage for what we're going to talk about next, uh, which are, is the new labeling laws and what this means. Um, but to, to be to sort of, you know, go back further, in 2004 was when the United States enacted the Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act. Uh, can you just describe what that accomplished at the time? So before that, um, and, and I, I, w- <laughs> I had the privilege of talking to the FDA around the, before that and, and doing some testifying. And it, and I had luckily, and it wasn't like I was smart about it, I just luckily had done uh, with my colleagues here at Sinai a few studies looking at how people interpret labels and what mistakes they make and, you know, what the difficulties are and what, what the, the patients that we had would like to see about changing it. So in those days, I was teaching people casein is word that means milk. You have to like read the label and make sure like if you see the word casein and you're avoiding milk, that's a, that's mm-hmm. milk. And you know, that, you know, that went on and on for, for many different foods. It's like you had to have a, a dictionary on you to make sure that you could figure this out. And also there, there wasn't necessarily consciousness, like things would say non-dairy, but it would have milk in it. It's just like all crazy <laughs> stuff. So, so this law made it required 
that the what were called at the time the major allergens, milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanut, tree nut, fish, and crustacean shellfish, the eight food or food categories would have to be disclosed in plain English terms uh, on the label uh, in some form. You know, it might be in the ingredient list, it might be in a contained statement or other things. So that it would be straightforward, and and also the type of food even would be listed. So if it was a nut, they would have to say what kind of nut, like walnut or almond. If it was a fish, they would say the kind of fish. So so that that really changed things a lot. Um, what it didn't change um, was, or or it sort of didn't it re semi revised was that advisory labeling, or may contain people call it a precautionary labeling. Uh, you know, is voluntary. It's not required. And so that has always been a little bit of a bane of people's existence that, you know, things will say spices, natural flavor. Um, you know, we know now that the major allergens can't be part of that, but other foods could be. And sesame would have been one of those. So something could say spices and maybe, or natural flavor, maybe sesame would be hidden in that. But the other side of it was, you know, something like may contain nuts. And then, or in a facility that also processes nuts, and those labels are voluntary and not regulated. And you know, subsequent studies found that uh, you know the public might read into those statements that some are higher risk than others, like may contain is worse than in a facility that also processes. But our studies looking at assaying products to see how much protein was in there did not bear that out. So basically, it didn't matter what the type of warning was, um, what words they used, um, but there you know, was a possibility that there could have been the protein there. But certainly, most of the times, there wasn't. And then the amount of the protein that could have contaminated the product is a, a guess. It's not typically a lot, but it could be a lot in some cases. Um, sometimes we're surprised at how much milk was detectable in dark chocolate, for example. So... Mm. So the laws really helped a lot of things, but it left a lot of things open-ended. Some of those are still open-ended, but the sesame <laughs> is one thing that has, has been revised. And, and we're going to get to that in just a second, but what about other countries? Do they have the same laws and regulations surrounding the clear labeling of food allergens or even precautionary labeling? And if not, how does the United States compare? So many other countries have had labeling laws that are requiring them to clearly label a variety of food allergens. Some of them um, have different foods than the U.S. has or had as of 2004. Some of them include more foods, some very different foods. But Australia, the European Union, and Canada, for example, have had sesame as part of their labeling laws for many years now, but the United States did not. Okay. As of January 1st, 2023, sesame has now been added to the list of allergens that must clearly be labeled on packaged products in the United States if it contains it as an ingredient. And this was part of a larger legislation titled Food Allergy Safety Treatment Education and Research Act of 2021, or the FASTER Act. Uh, what else was included as part of the FASTER Act, and why is this important? Well, probably the most important part of the FASTER Act was the labeling of sesame, um, which I, I guess we'll talk more about. But um, it, it also asked for a regulatory process about food allergens. And that's sort of the main thing, that if you're going to change you know, the, the 
foods that are covered by it. And I, I listed the eight food or food categories before, and now sesame is sort of the ninth, um, that there would be a specific process about evaluating a food, um, kind of like petitioning for that food to be included in the laws. There's also a, um, a request that the Secretary of Health and Human Services have a report to Congress about food allergy in general, like diagnosis and treatment and prevention and um, the practical issues and things like that, um, which I think we're still waiting for right now. But uh, it, it really gave a lot more um, attention to food allergy, which is great. Oh, I agree. That is great. Uh, so yes, you're right. So one of the most important parts is the new Sesame, Sesame Law. And then prior to January 1st of this year, you'd mentioned that it could be sort of hidden in uh, you know, natural spices or flavorings or things like that. But what are what were some of the other ways that Sesame was listed on packages prior to this change? And how does this new FASTER Act actually change anything? So there was actually a publication by Wynn um, that was a, sort of a social through social media. Uh, so it, it has its nuances that way. But People with uh, sesame allergy were reporting that uh, about half of them had a reaction from a product where the word sesame wasn't used on the label. And, you know, one of the most common scenarios, because I don't think most companies were hiding that sesame was an ingredient, but they would use a word like tahini. And so the word sesame maybe wasn't there. And there are, you know, other words like bene or gamasco that might show up on some products. That are that don't use the word sesame per se, or or might say sesame, sesame, like the <laughs> the botanical word for it. Um, mm. I think it's sesame indica. Yeah, but anyway, so um, so now the word, plain English word sesame, has to be there, and it and you don't have to worry that if it says natural flavoring or spices or something like that, that the word sesame, that the food sesame would have been hidden in that. So it's a big change in terms of making it much more clear that this is a product that, you know, someone with a sesame allergy would need to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like everything else, you know, a product, you know, a product, a can sitting on the shelf doesn't know that a law changed. So, you know, this has been in the works for a while now. The FDA had made an announcement to companies about starting to label for sesame a lot earlier than this. Companies knew that this was coming. Um, but, you know, still shelf life is shelf life. So, you know, there there may be some leftover products that people would, you know, still maybe have to worry about. But I, I think, you know, we're getting to a point where there'll be, you know, easier transition that products on the shelves are substantially and then eventually completely going to be covered by the law. So this seems like this is a great thing for those who have sesame allergy. And as you mentioned, it, it is one of the more common food allergens, along with the top eight. Now, some say it's in the top nine. Uh, but we live in a world of unintended consequences. And in December of 2022, <laughs> right, so before this even became a law, or January 1st, um, the Associated Press reported that several food manufacturers and large restaurant chains were actually changing the recipes to intentionally now include sesame as an ingredient, as a direct response to the FASTER Act. And apparently, it's easier and less costly to just add sesame and declare it as an allergen than it is to enact stringent cleaning and avoidance measures and things like that. So do we have any confirmation that this has actually led to widespread changes in ingredients from uh, these different manufacturers? Or uh, along those lines, have we heard from patients that they're finding it, uh, sesame in more foods that they were previously eating without issues? So, so you use the term unintended consequence, hmm. and I would use the term horror show, um, <laughs> because you know it's, it's just horrible that 
you know, something that was meant to make things easier for our patients uh, and easier for their, you know, food providers and caregivers uh, ends up turning, you know, an evil twist and is making it more confusing and more difficult to find products. So I, so actually the first I heard of it were my own patients saying to me, this bread that I always use now that has sesame in it. And I called the company and they said that now they're adding sesame flour. And, you know, I wasn't, the first few times I heard it, I, I was like, oh, I, you know, like I didn't realize it could be widespread. I was like, oh, I guess, you know, that's not good. But now I've heard it from a lot of patients. And then, of course, the news reports started. Um, I think my patients picked it up before I heard it in the news. And it's pretty widespread from what I seem to be hearing. I mean, there are major, I won't name any companies or brands, but there are some major food companies and brands that seem to be doing this. And the biggest disappointing part to me is, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the same laws have been active for a really long time in Australia, the European Union, there's lots of countries there, and Canada, and I never heard of anything about that from them. I mean, the companies basically just did their thing and didn't like make a twist on this and decide it was cheaper to add another ingredient than to clean you know, their equipment. So I'm, I'm hopeful that with recognition of this uh, workaround, nasty workaround, that uh, the companies will, you know, fall in line. Uh, that will, I mean, we're already doing advocacy work to to make this happen. Um, I know our patients. I told our patients. I know our patients are complaining to the companies. They want to use the product, and now they're concerned. Uh, there's some suspiciousness that happens. Like, well, did they really change the ingredients now, or is it really the same mm -hmm. thing that I've been eating for the last, you know, ten years? Um, do I really have to stop eating this food I enjoyed for ten years? Uh, but and then you know this this ends up creating a cascade because you know then distributors and you know this then like what about the school what about restaurants you know it it really has a cascading effect so my hope is that this will get fixed um, but for now I don't know exactly what the um, degree is here and you know I am concerned that you know we don't know all the information but it seems to be that. People are, are, instead of cleaning, are, are, for financial reasons, changing ingredient lists. The diagnosis of food allergy and, and avoidance of allergens centers around trust, right? I mean, we, we trust the labels that we read, uh, the communication with food handlers and things along those lines. So um, as you mentioned, this just really kind of destroys that trust that, that was once there. Uh, and it is a big problem. And, you know, until we have a better, you know, concrete understanding of this, and there's, you know, there's anecdotal reports, and uh, obviously it's of great concern. So until we can really understand exactly how this impacts patients, or maybe we can change some things through advocacy work. What advice do you have for those who need to avoid sesame at this time? I tell them to read the labels, that they could trust the labels better than they could before. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, that's basically the main thing, that, that, that now they don't have to worry so much that uh, vague terms on a label like spices or natural flavorings, it's not going to be sesame in there going forward. Uh, with this new twist that was in the unintended consequence, I have to give them advice about finding alternative products in many cases now, 
uh, until these companies change their ways. Okay. And you had mentioned this before, and, um, you know, I, I receive a lot of, um, and I welcome this, I, questions from patients and families and parents about media headlines surrounding food allergies and all the great research that's going on. Uh, do you have any advice on, for all, all of us, really, how best to navigate the never-ending stream of information that's online and all these eye-catching headlines that we come across? Well, the eye-catching headlines for this Sesame Twist have been modest, I think, um, but, you know, they as we talked about, they seem to be real. On the other hand, in general, you know, anything that's new, whether it's impactful or not impactful, the news can, you know, make it sound impactful. So, you know, I think it's always with a grain of salt uh, in terms of what you see in the media. We've seen headlines over the years of things like charcoal cures food allergy. And (laughs) that was like a whole big misunderstanding. Uh, and and many other things like that. So it's always, I think, important to, you know, understand that, you know, take, you know, read carefully, um, talk to your allergist or uh, general doctor about things if you have questions about whether it applies to you or your family. Um, I I would say in terms of what we've been talking about so far um, to, you know, let's, you know, hope that, you know, this really is an advance that we've been fighting for for many, many years in getting the labeling laws improved, and that we're just looking at a temporary bump in the road as the companies try to readjust to it. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. Well, how do you counsel your own patients regarding reading labels for their allergens? Not just sesame, but you know anything that they're allergic to. Well, let's just, for the simplicity, say it's one of the, the top nine food allergens that you mentioned. Should they read these labels every single time, even if they've been eating that food for years? Uh, should they call manufacturers, even if the label does not state that it contains their allergen? You know, what's a practical approach to this? So uh, th- that's really a great practical point. And I wish I could say, like, don't read the label every time, but I have to say read the label every time because this is an exact example. The sesame example is a good one where you might have a product that you've always had and you think you're used to always being the same, but maybe something changed. And so different sizes of products could have slightly different ingredients. Sometimes the same exact product made in different parts of the country um, have different, you know, manufacturing situations and they may be different. So unfortunately, it is best advice, I think, to read the ingredient label every time just to make sure something, you know, hasn't changed. In terms of calling the manufacturer, um, I, I try to explain to families major manufacturers. So, so one of the things that comes up is, you know, okay, so there could be a precautionary label in a facility with, may contain, et cetera. And we could have a separate conversation about, you know, does this particular patient have to worry about that warning or not? It has to do with thresholds, shared decision-making, and, you know, the most conservative thing would be to say, don't eat that product, but there might be some nuances you could discuss. That's one category. The other category is a, is a patient or family who asks, you know, my child is avoiding milk. Nothing mentions milk on the label and there's no advisory on the label. How do I know that there couldn't be milk in this? Should I call them to find out? And I think personally that that's, not necessary, particularly for any real major company. I mean, it might be necessary for a mom and pop shop or bakery or something like that to talk to them more about, you know, what they're doing in their place. But if we're talking about major companies, they, you know, they know about allergens and I don't think you would, you know, necessarily want them to have a list that says this, by the way, doesn't contain this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. Um, So if there's no, if it's not, 
you know, let's take milk for an example. If there's not milk on the label, um, it's a major manufacturer. Uh, it, there's no warning about milk. It's not part of the ingredients. I'm not so sure I would call the company about that. Although now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm thinking about dark chocolate products that could be sometimes tricky. But uh, for the most part, um, you know, the, I wouldn't have them calling about major manufacturer products that are um, not happening to mention their. Does that make sense? It does. And I actually appreciate you mentioning the dark chocolate comment. Uh, I had to chuckle a little bit because I think that you you can talk yourself into circles when it comes to this, right? I mean, it, it can almost be like a never ending. I mean, if you call the manufacturer and you talk to somebody that doesn't quite know what they're doing, or maybe they don't instill that confidence level that you want, you, can you then trust them? And um, so at some point, we, we have to help our patients live their lives. Uh, and just going back to everything you talked about before of, you know, what are some some realistic risks uh, uh, that we can help them avoid? Uh, what are some practical ways that they can sort of manage their their food allergies and, and some avoidance steps they can take and just have that conversation with each individual? But I, this is a great conversation. And I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to kind of walk through it. The short answer is, you know, to the question, should they call the manufacturer even if the label does not state that it contains their allergen? My answer is generally no for major companies, but maybe yes for a mom and pop shop. And even that mm -hmm. uh, goes back to, you know, the individual's threshold situation. Sure. Well, you know, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. And, and as we wrap things up today, if you're open to it, I'd like to ask you just a few more questions, um, sort of uh, a little uh, outside of the realm of sesame allergy. Um, You've dedicated your career to researching and improving our understanding of various aspects of food allergy. What do you think has been the most significant advancement in this realm over the past 20 years? Well, if I have to, if I have to pick one thing, <laughs> it would be three things, which is prevention, right? Because, you know, we're talking so differently to people, uh, you know, years ago, and now we're talking about, no, go ahead and get those allergens into the diet early. The second thing, if I only could pick one thing, would be treatment through immunotherapy and baked egg and baked milk. Um, you know, I remember distinctly, you know, hearing people say, oh, gee, you know, stop having that muffin that has milk in it because you're allergic mm -hmm. to milk, so you shouldn't be eating any. Um, you know, when they were tolerating it, hey, it might be that that was fine and not only fine, maybe it even helps. Um, so ingestion of allergens for, for treatment or uh, quality of life purposes. And then the third thing of the one thing I get to choose is diagnostics because um, I think we have emerging better diagnostics, but, but you know, even the ones that we have now are such an advance in terms of component testing and things like that. So, so I would say the one most significant advancement are, the, or at least those three things. Oh, uh, I'll allow that. That's fine. No. <laughs> Um, you know, so on the flip side, uh, Dr. Sisher, I, I like to ask our guests to dust off their crystal balls and make predictions of the future. And of course, I won't hold anybody accountable. Uh, so if you were to predict the overall state of food allergies 20 years from now, where do you think we're going to be? Do you think that we'll have found a cure, perhaps a guaranteed way to prevent food allergy from developing in the first place? What, what are your thoughts on that question? The ball is cracked, but um, <laughs> if I were to trust it, I, I think I, I think it's so, I mean, I tell families this, that I really in my heart feel that, you know, if we're looking, you know, at 10 and 15 and 20 years from now, I mean, it's impossible for me to imagine that there wouldn't be a treatment or set of treatments that would pretty much guarantee that they're not going to have an allergic reaction from ingestion of a food, if not being able to just ingest the foods without worry, 
if you want to call that a cure. Um, I always remind people that, you know, we have these cell phones that are crazy. Like I never, like 20 years ago, I never would have imagined what our cell phones do nowadays. I mean, we would stop our car to get out and put money in this box to be able to call somebody. You know, I mean, that is so different now. Mm -hmm. um, so I really can't imagine a world in 20 years from now where we're going to be doing the things that we're doing now with biologics coming, with the prevention issues. Um, I think we're just going to have a much better way to prevent uh, if not cure, then at least make life and probably ingest most of the foods that we have people not ingesting now. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The, the, you can feel the momentum in this space and it's very exciting. So that's great. Well, if you're game for it, I have one last question. And this is also something that I, I love our, our expert guests to offer their thoughts on. Are you, are you up for it? Yes, let's do it. Okay. If you could have one message, and I'm gonna, um, you have to stick to one. You can't turn this into a three-parter like you did with the last question or two questions ago. <laughs> if you could have one message surrounding food allergies that you could place on blimps or hot air balloons for all the world to see, what would it be and why? So I have, a, I have two answers, but I'll make it one answer just so that I don't get you mad. The blimp <laughs> would say... For those with food allergy, I would like you, and this is what I tell my patients, I'd like you to be able to do everything that people without food allergies do except perhaps eat the food that you're allergic to. And it would also say, and for the rest of you, be compassionate. Mm. So, you know, I, 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 I try to remind myself to say this to families, particularly at an initial diagnosis visit, that your child or, or the or the uh, older individual, you know, you're a person, you're you. And, you know, this is a thing that you're going to, you know, be managing, but it should not stop you from doing your athletic activities, your social activities, all of these activities, along with everybody else, you're going to have to make some accommodations to, you know, make sure that you stay safe. But I don't want you cutting out what other people do. I want you to do everything that they can do except maybe be eating these foods. And um, and that does take compassion from others because it takes a village. Well, I think those are great messages to end on. And, and Dr. Sisher, this has been a great conversation. I know it's very timely. I know there's a lot of questions surrounding sesame allergy and the new labeling laws. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, do you have any last words to share before we depart? Dave, I just have to thank you for making such an amazing series of podcasts that are so informative, enjoyable to listen to, um, and you know I think are are a great way for changing practice and informing the public. It's a fantastic service uh, from you, from the academy on all all levels, uh, the team behind it as well. Uh, it's it's just a pleasure, and uh, I congratulate you on that. And I think you're heading toward like a special number of these yeah, with any luck we'll, we'll reach our 100th podcast recording sometime in the year 2023 so yes thank you that's fantastic so thanks again for the invitation oh well no it's our pleasure thank you so much we hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation if you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.